What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Deconstructionists Podcast. We are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. And we are here to bring you a very special episode, a little bit different than what we normally do, but a different type of show. And you're going to notice uh, pretty quickly that throughout this episode, we're going to do it a little differently where we're going to have music kind of interwoven throughout the episode. And um, so we really want to bring art in general to you guys. Yeah. And uh, specifically, you know, Av and I just love music and, and we feel like it has this, this special way of kind of transcending even language. Yes. Um, so Adam, why don't you tell, us, tell them a little bit about the, the first of what we hope to be many um, in regards to artists. Um, tell them a little bit about who we got on the show this week. So this is kind of a, a big deal for me personally. I loved what you said, John. It's artists in general have an ability to get you to places before your rational brain can catch up. And this artist in particular, uh, whose name is Derek Webb, some of you may know him, some of you may love him, some of you may hate him, and I'm guessing a ton of you just have no idea uh, who he is, which is really exciting to me because that means you are about to encounter absolute beauty and genius Mm. for the first time. Like the first time you saw the ocean or like the first time you saw, um, you know, a really great painting or uh, stumbled across a great band or, you know, this particular artist did for me what sort of this podcast is all about. A long time ago, before I even realized it, Derek, through his songs, took me to a place in my faith that wasn't as certain 
that was more about questions and less about answers, that was more about struggling and wrestling and being honest about that in community. And his, uh, he's like, he's like the, like the Christian, like Woody Guthrie, man. <laughs> I mean, and you know, he wouldn't, he would shrink away from that terminology. I'm sure both Christian and Woody Guthrie. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's a tough guy to label. Yeah, that's very um, true. He's a really, really tough guy to label. And I think that that is why he's so beautiful. Like why, yeah. why it's such genius work. Um, but Derek was one of the founding members of this band that kind of blew up in the 90s. It was this like folk rock, uh, incredible group uh, that again, you probably wouldn't even realized was a Christian band if, if somebody would have played it for you because the art was just so good. But Derek just did this incredible job even when he was in this quote-unquote Christian world to struggle openly, to struggle honestly, to to let me peer into a world of um, not just halos and angels' wings and golden harps and clouds and certainty and beauty and cathedrals and polish and paint and plastic although that stuff actually does have its place i don't want to sound like i'm poo-pooing on it i actually really uh, enjoy a, a worship experience and, and all that stuff's great but he took me to another place and as a follower of jesus as a christian as somebody who is spiritual he used his art in this band cademan's call to show me what it looks like to struggle with life's questions he has always been somebody that I've looked to as a deconstructionist, as somebody that wrestles and struggles honestly and has humility and grace. And so, you know, eventually he left Cadman's Call. I think that his project of honesty and authenticity took him outside of that. And he started a solo project called Derek Webb. And it's just, you know, he said he never planned on making more than one record. And now he's made a few. Uh, his first record was a kind of a critique of the church and a critique of culture at the same time. It was called She Must and Shall Go Free, and it was all based on the theology of Martin Luther. And then he's done uh, great records on, obviously, faith and spirituality. He's done great records on politics, on sexuality, on race. And most recently, he did a great record, um, pro wrote, produced, and performed the whole thing himself called uh, I Was Wrong, I'm Sorry, and I Love You. <laughs> And it's a uh, 10 years later look at his first record, She Must and Shall Go Free. And he, what he realized is I'm a different man than I was 10 years ago. Yeah. What would it be like if I tried to remake that record now? So do you see what I mean when I say like he just continues to just portray this honesty? It, it is his MO. He actually calls himself on his social media and every, everywhere else like a professional agitator. Yep. Because he knows that that's what honesty does. And so you're going to hear his music throughout this episode and it is just a delight for me to bring you this content. Derek is brilliant. He's socially aware. He's philosophically aware, theologically aware. He's an entrepreneur. He started a company called Noise Trade, which has got an incredible story. Maybe we can touch on that a little bit in the outro because I really want to get to this interview now, but you guys are in for a real treat here. This is a guy that I don't care who you are. When you listen to this, you're going to feel like you're sitting with a human being that understands you and that can speak some wisdom and some truth into your life. And he does that not only through words and propositions like on this interview, but check out his music, all of it. I'm so happy we got him for you. Oh, man. Dude, you can see that you can see I'm glowing a little bit yeah. right now. Yeah, this is great. This is one of the fun parts of, of what we do. And you um, know what? I didn't fanboy out. You didn't. 
very you were, much. You were very reserved. I was oh, <laughs> it's been hard. I've been listening to the criticisms of people online and trying to <laughs> trying to bend just a little bit because I know that I can be so intense. But ah, <laughs> it's always fun to be able to to uh, to do an interview like that with somebody that you you revere and respect. The fact that he could admit that look, like over the course of this period of time, I have evolved. I continue to evolve. We're trying to get as many artists as we can. We don't just want quote unquote thinkers. I hate that terminology anyway. Like we're all thinkers, obviously. But some people do it brilliantly with with art. We actually just had a post on our forum today that somebody was talking about, man, I can listen to teachings and collect knowledge and read books. But it's like, man, when I hear a great piece of poetry or see a great movie that tells a great story, it's like all of that stuff gets told to my soul in a way that rationality and propositional truth couldn't. Let's roll tape on this interview. Let's do it. Without further ado, here is Derek Webb. Back I'm staring through a keyhole at my lover. I swear it's not from this Derek Webb, welcome to the Deconstructionists podcast. Hey, thanks. Pleasure. Man, it's really um, it's really awesome to have you on here um, as somebody that's followed your music career for uh, a really long time, even back when you were with Cademan's Call. And then I was very exci- <laughs> I was very excited when I heard that you were going to be doing a solo project because uh, you know to share a little of my embarrassing high school autobiography with you just a little bit i always connected with your songs more than the other cademan songs anyway so i would make like this is when Man. cd burners were like the, yeah. you know like brand new like you could burn sure. your own cd's and it cost like a thousand dollars well maybe it was later on then because we were poor and i did not have yeah <laughs> no, <okay. laughs> but um i would always kind of like take your tracks off the cademan's records and I would still listen Man. to the, I would listen to the Cademan's records, and I loved them. But I always resonated mm. with what you said a whole lot more. And I think you were the mm. first artist in like a spiritual category that I had ever heard be vocal about struggle and doubt in a culture, mm. especially in a culture of music that was built on like certainty. Yeah. And, and, wow. And yeah. how did? I mean, now I'm putting you know 35 year old words to you know 15 year old. Right. You know, per- perceptions <laughs> but i mean i think that's maybe what was going on and how uh how did you start learning to be public vocal to wrestle and struggle and doubt in that really steep uh thick christian culture of like certainty yeah wow well well said i mean that yeah that's a that's a word i'm that i feel like i wrestle with a lot certainty and i mean i think probably the advantage that we had in Cademan's was that we just started so young. So we just didn't know any better. Like we didn't, sure. We, we, it's like, it's like, so I've got a, a, um, a seven and eight year old, I've got a seven year old daughter, and eight year old son. And, oh. and as I've watched them grow up, it's like when you see people, when you can, when you can observe people in super early stages of development and you can see before they, 
are conscious of kind of social realities and they don't have any real social skills. Yeah, and yeah. That's why people, that's why people always say that like kids will just kind of say anything. You have to be really careful because you'll have a fight with your friend uh, and, and, and then your friend will come over and your, your kid will say, my daddy doesn't like you very much right now. Cause you were mean to him. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, right. you, you, you know what I'm saying? It's oh, like, dude, totally. and, you know, so kids, you have to be careful because kids will yeah. tell the truth and that you have to, you know, they're, they're, um, they're dangerous in that way. And so, um, I think we were just really young and I think we also were fairly unaware of kind of the rules inside of the Christian, um, uh, kind of cultural institution. We didn't really know a lot about that. I mean, only a few of us, I mean, granted there were like seven of us in the band, but only a few of us had really grown up listening to Christian music or knew a lot about that. And mm. so, um, the, our first couple of years, which would have been like in the early nineties, we started the band in 92. And so our first couple of years when we were making records independently and touring and doing stuff independently, we, um, we didn't, we just toured colleges. We just played colleges. All of our friends were in college. We should have been in college. Like we were, I mean, I literally, um, you know, like we started the band the semester that would have been my freshman, um, semester of college. Like I, it was wow. right out of high school for me. And, and I was kind of on the young side, but kind of more on the average. I mean, there were a few, a few of the guys who were a little older and, and, and a couple people who are a little younger, but like, so we were, you know, we got gigs at colleges cause all of our friends who we had just been in school with were all now spread out all over Texas. A lot of them, cause that's where we were living. And so it, it was just easy for us to get gigs. And so we were just a college band and we were just trying to, I mean, we were honestly, we were trying to be like the Indigo guys, you know, <laughs> at that point in our, right. in our career, you know what I'm saying? Like that's what we were after. Yeah. That, that's what we were yeah. emulating. Yeah. And and talk about a great model. We didn't even realize what a good model it was. Cause first of all, um, you know, Amy and Emily, the way that they write their songs, the way that they, it was a perfect model for us because you had, you know, um, Amy who has a very distinct voice as a writer, a very distinct, um, style as a performer, um, the production of her stuff. Emily's stuff is, is super different but just as it's apples and oranges, you know, and, um, so they would divide their records up kind of back and forth. It'd be like, uh, usually they'd open a record with a, with an Amy song and then go to an Emily song and they'd rarely put two in a row. And so we totally emulated that because, um, I was writing, I was writing kind of half the songs and the other half of the songs were being written by this guy, Aaron Tate, who was not in our band, but he, he was like a part of our band, but he wasn't ever in our band. He, he didn't perform with us or anything. He used to get her half of the writing. And so Cliff Young would sing Aaron's songs. And then occasionally Danielle, um, who, who went on to be Cliff's wife, um, she would sing some of Aaron's songs and she would sing some of my songs, but I mostly sang my songs. And so we would split them up that way. So like we would start, usually start with one of Aaron's songs. He, he kind of, he had a much more better developed pop sensibility than I did. And, he was a much better writer. He's always been a much better writer than, than I was. And so we would start with like an Aaron song and then go to one of mine, go back to one of his, we had just super different energies. And, and so, and the other thing that I think was re really informative for us and we didn't know it at the time was, you know, here you have 
at the time there really couldn't have been a, a diff, a more different group of people. You've got, so the Indigo girls, which are, you know, uh, uh, like are really strong women, really independent thinking, uh, women and, um, you know, activists and independent record label owners and, um, you know, pioneers in their industry and, and also gay, both of them. And then you, you have us and we're like these white, you know, college age kind of Christian kids. Yeah. And like, they're, you know, we were a pretty different uh, couple of groups of folks. And yet when we, and I, this is the power of great songwriting and of gr- what music can do, um, what great music, what transcendent music can do and what it's what their music still honestly does even 20, almost five years later still does to me is you didn't have to be a 30 something lesbian woman to understand and resonate with the songs that they were writing because the songs were just so good. And and the emotion that they Mm. were able to bottle in those songs was so transcendent and true and real. And so like I, they were literally writing the emotional soundtrack from my twenties, you know, and, and like we relate, I related to them completely, like all the way down to the raw emotion. I did. I really did. And, and yet we couldn't have been more different. Yeah. So, so that was like a great, um, that was what we were emulating. Like I wanted to write songs and I, I know Aaron did too. And it was definitely an ethic we really believed in as a band that like we wanted anybody to be able to hear these songs. And if we were doing our jobs, right, it wouldn't be required that somebody had the same life experience, grid of belief about the world, um, you know, gender, sexual preference as we did in order to, to still feel as though we could, they could borrow the language that we had written in order to tell their stories. And so, Mm. and cause that's what the Indigo girls were doing. And that's, and so, and so I think that's part of, that was kind of like the boot camp, you know, for, for me as a writer, but I didn't even, we didn't even realize how well matched we were with our mentors at that point, our mentors being, being the Indigo girls, you know, and, and, and in later years, we, we've all gone on to meet them and, and become very casual, but friends, like we, you know, I've, we've met on many occasions and, and they are just as kind and generous and open as you would imagine based on the songs they've written. And that's exactly what we had kind of hoped to, to do, you know? And so I think that's where I learned it. I learned it because I had great teachers. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. Wow, the backstory on that was very satisfying for an old, yeah. fan, an old man like <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> yeah. What would you do if someone put a gun to your head and you to I love what you've said. Um, I, I've, I've read some of your other interviews. And um, for, for me growing up, I had no idea. I didn't have this exposure to um, what I would later uh, come to realize was this kind of like Christian subgenre. Um, yeah. I, the only thing my, that I knew was, uh, you know, like Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis Chapman. Right. That was Christian music to me, yes. right? And then right. it wasn't until I was about to go into college in the, uh, the late 90s where I was kind of uh, introduced to... 
you know, Christian metal and Christian punk rock and, you know, right. Christian folk and stuff. So I've always been super fascinated with that. And I love what you said in one of your interviews where you talk about um, in regards to secular versus sacred music and how it relates to art. Um, right. So, so this is something, uh, something that I asked uh, Kevin Maxson when we t- spoke with him as well. But do you feel like if musicians as a whole were just a little more honest in their writing, would there even need to be this kind of subgenre of Christian music? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that sounds true to me. I mean, you know, I think honesty is definitely a, a big part of it. I think at the same time, so let me lead by saying this, and if you've heard me talk before, you've heard me say it, but for the benefit of your listeners who've, who've maybe never heard of me before, like the, the word Christian, when applied to anything other than a human being, is a marketing term. Yes. Yes. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Marketing terms are super helpful. They help us to navigate in culture to things we wish to consume. It's like a, it's a hashtag. Absolutely. Right? And, and that's all that it is, though. And so the minute that we begin attaching security and putting faith in hashtags, which is to say marketing, um, things that people basically rubber stamp onto products, services, institutions, in order for us to find them, the minute that we, that we start to attach faith and safety and security onto those categories is a is a super dangerous thing for us to do. And, um, you know, there, there just is no such thing as Christian music, Christian art, Christian institutions, Christian education, Christian bubblegum, Christian yes. theme parks, Christian radio stations. <laughs> there just is no such thing, you know, and, and, and for so many reasons. And mainly because, the thing that you presume about the word Christian when applied to a human can't be true of anything else. Um, it can't be true of anything soulless. And um, like there, there, there simply is not a, an inherently saved, redeemed, which, would, which is to say right, true, good, and beautiful style of music that will be the only, pres- presumably, the only music that we'll be listening to in heaven. Right. In the same way that you can yes. presume that Christian, I'm making air quotes, people <laughs> yes. are the only people who we will find in heaven. Does right. that mean that Christian radio is the only radio that we'll find in heaven? Christian art, you know, culturally sanctioned Christian art or Christian education will be the, that, those only things? Like, that's not the way I understand it. Like, the way right. I understand it is that it, it will be all of the best of culture from all time and all over will be brought into a new kingdom. And like, it doesn't say anything anywhere about this kind of divinely ordained rubber stamp that we have been stamping things with as, as they go down the, um, the assembly line into culture. This is the Christian stuff and this is the not Christian stuff. Um, Cause the other thing is it, 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 it creates this presumption that, we and our children can come into a Christian, again, air quotes with my fingers, Christian bookstore, and that everything here is Christian. So it's all been pre like vetted for your spiritual nourishment and benefit. Yes. Everything beyond the threshold of our doors 
is right, true, good, and beautiful. It's the same thing you hear with the marketing around Christian radio stations. It's safe for the whole family, right? And right. <laughs> and the thing that tr- and the thing that troubles me about that is not only not even and not mostly that 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 can't be true because it's just a you know because the because Christian artists being one, I can tell you that this is a fact and being from Nashville where all the sausage is made in terms of Christian content that I am just as we here in Nashville who make all this Christian content, we are just as likely to lie to you as anybody else, even accidentally to misrepresent realities, to tell you things that are not true about ourselves, about God, about reality. We're just as likely as anybody else. Someone's just rubber stamped us. And so you're led to believe that we're saying things that are right, true, good, and beautiful. And that's not true, but that's not even the thing that bothers me the most. What bothers me the most is that safe for the whole family is a horrible advertisement for their presumed product, which you think is Jesus, right? Right. And he was not safe, certainly no. not for the whole family. No. So, so it's just so confusing. The whole that the whole thing, this whole Christian, and yet a lot of people, maybe you guys and I did to some extent, grow up with parents and with people in your community who are basically looking for that marketing category, that hashtag, so to speak, um, and and huddling us around those things and and basically right. making us fearful of everything else. Anything that doesn't have the marketing category, we're taught to fear, right. uh, secular things. And, and all of that is really mostly ridiculous because of, I think, did David Dark say this, um, that it's mostly ridiculous because um, it, it, it somehow presumes the idea that there is even a secular molecule in the universe, <laughs> which, which, which of course there's not. Right. So, right, right. um, or that's, or that's the idea. So anyway, it's like, yeah, that's, that stuff all drives me crazy. And, and, um, and so I've done everything I can, um, over the years to try to be a disruptive element. Um, yes, you, you know, in, in, in that. And, uh, yes. it certainly doesn't sell you a lot of records, but, um, it gets me, it gets me pretty decent sleep. So yeah, that's Absolutely. awesome, man. And to, and to your previous point, I think if I got to heaven and, and all I heard was Sandy Patty, I would think I took a wrong turn. So right. <laughs> it's like, who'd want to go there? <laughs> exactly. you know, and, no, and no offense and no offense to Sandy Patty. I mean, you know, but it's like, it's, it, 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 it <laughs> yeah, it's like they're, they're just, there can't be, um, inherently redeemed. I mean, the most ridiculous way you can frame it is to say, unless Jesus comes unless the Jesus version of breath mints come to earth and live the, the perfect redeemed life of a breath mint and then die and then sacrifice itself for all the breath mints, there can't be Christian breath mints. It just doesn't make sense. That was you know, like, bre- like breath mints have no will. They have no volition. Right. They can't. Right. So it just, it's, it's ridiculous. But if that's not what we mean, like that seems to be what we mean, though. And people would say, "Well, that's ridiculous." I'm like, "Right, but why do you? Why, depending on your experience, why do you feel better tuning into the Christian radio station and guilty when you don't? And like, why do you? Why do you feel like? Well, but if there's Christian stuff out there, shouldn't I? Don't, wouldn't I want to consume the Christian stuff and kind of avoid the not Christian stuff? It's like, right, but there's no Christian stuff, right, and there's right. not not Christian stuff. The only choice you have is to use your powers of discernment, which is a lot more complicated, right. in order to find truth wherever you can. And I think it was Lewis who said, or, or Schaefer maybe, who said, 
that all truth is God's truth. And it wasn't a statement about relative, subjective, objective truth. It was is that true things, truth like beauty, is yes. only ever residual. It's only ever reflective. Yes. And if you hear someone say something true, even if their conclusions are not true, if there's a moment of truth in something they've said, which you see all over culture constantly, um, and it comes, it comes up like blips. It's not steady streams of truth, but it comes up like blips here and there. Um, you see it in movies and culture and music and art and, and, uh, and writing. And it, then its origin is God. Um, that's what I think Schaefer was trying to say. And, yeah. um, you know, so I, you know, it's like, it's harder to have a grid through which you can look at the world in order to see that and find it wherever it can be found and fear nothing and engage with everything. Right. It's harder. Man. And it's a harder way to control and manipulate the behavior of children. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, so anyway, I think that's what we're up against. I have needs, I cannot deny them. I was made to want these things. I will stay if you can supply them. If you can't, I'll trade my ring For a father who loves me enough To provide what he's made me to love It's very good you said so yourself Then you put it so high on the shelf But I can almost taste it and, and to that point, it, it seems like in, in creating this whole uh, subgenre in general of, of Christian, Christianized, um, you know, music, art, movies, whatever, it, yeah. it, it seems like we're almost building this false, false sense of safety uh, for, for our children, our families, and it's almost sure. doing a disservice uh, uh, to those kids. I, I, I can speak from experience. I have had family members who were raised in a very Christianized bubble and it and it really had kind of the the opposite backfiring effect. Yeah. Oh no! It, it always does. It always does. Yeah, right. yeah. Because because then eventually, you you can't like because you can only control a child for so long, and then once they're on their own and they can think for themselves and they can go where they wish to go and see what they wish to see, then suddenly they begin engaging with things that are not sanctioned, so to speak. They're not on brand. And, and then all at once they kind of discover, wait a second, like there's a lot of people saying a lot of things that, that actually don't in any way conflict with the, the kind of the fundamental hardwiring of how I look at the world. Absolutely. And, and, and maybe even saying truer things and are maybe able to say truer things than the people who are writing my poetry. Like yeah. these poets say much truer things. And, and these stories have real evil and real villains in them yes. where the stories that are being written by my poets don't because they can't represent real evil because like the, 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 the most violent, you know, an evil character in the story is the, the guy who's like smoking and drinking, <laughs> right. you know, if, if, if as a fiction writer, that's as far as you can go then you're really misrepresenting everything about reality. Yes. You have to, you, and, and, and ironically, the Bible does that. I mean, there's some really heinous 
yeah. stuff going on. And, yeah. and it's like, you know, it's like the villains are really bad and often they're us. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the whole story is like, we're the villain in the story, you know? And it's like, and, and it's, we are, you know, like we're the one who kills the only one perfect, you know? And it's like, but it's like, if you can't find stories that represent reality correctly, then, then once you find them, you know, it, it really, it does kind of cause a total digging up of all the roots of everything from the beginning, because suddenly you have to rethink everything. Like, well, wait a second. Yeah, like yeah, my yeah. whole life has been learning how to identify um, and look for and squint my eyes to see things that are on brand for the way I see the world. And now I've realized that I've been looking for all the wrong things. And yes, I, and I, yeah. there's just so much I haven't heard and don't know. And that yeah. I could learn from everything and everywhere and everybody. So it's like, it's disappointing. And I think as a result, yes. that's that emotional reaction is what causes people to like binge. I mean, you've just, you're, you're hitting on stuff that I, I struggled with in that you almost like in, in some ways I think helped me start to realize some things at an early age on an emotional wavelength that I maybe wasn't ready for like cerebrally. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for like intellectually mm -hmm. yet. And I think that that is so archetypal of everybody uh, if you grow right. up in any kind of a bubble and you're taught to look here, don't look there, you know, here's the approved message, here's the party line, here's the, the whatever, but you can, yeah. you can hear the tunes and you can hear, you know, the clamor outside the walls and you know that there, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. that there's more, everybody yeah. knows that there's more and you know that there's yeah. a thick atmosphere of fear and then when some, yeah. when some person, and for me, Derek, it was you in some ways, like when I heard your song, The Truth, yeah. The Truth, right? It was like one of my favorite songs. And it was, in, in, from, from my standpoint, as a, as a listener, not as an artist, but from my standpoint, here's here is a guy that is willing to say, I was wrong about something. It's not that simple. I, right. I used to say it was simple. That's my, my interpretation of that song. And here, yeah, and here sure, I'm right. going, wait a second, I know that's right. I know there's something beautiful and right and true there, but I thought I was supposed to get all the right answers and find right. like this ultimate certainty. And so you kind of woke me up in some emotional way at that point hmm. to later on start to realize like Lewis or Schaefer or whoever said like there is yeah, so yeah. many beautiful and true things out there, Yeah, but... The party yeah. line, the company line, the approved message yeah. is not even just a little part of the story. It's a, yeah. it's an overly edited fake plastic kind of story that right. isn't even in the Bible that we're sub allegedly learning. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's the, and that's the thing that's, that, you know, art is the one place still the, that I feel like kind of has its roots in um, that th these, it's the one place in culture still where these mysterious and primitive things can happen where, where like where else, but in art at this point in our, you know, it, it, unbelievable advanced, advanced technology and knowledge about everything, which, you know, like, you know, I mean, where else, but in art can the interpretation of what's been said or made be as true 
subjectively for the person experiencing it as it as it is for the person who made it. Oh my god. It's like somebody asked me, well like what is what is that song about? And I'm like, I don't know. Like <laughs> what do you think it's about? Right. You know, it's like it's like um which which ironically is, is even you know, Chris that's another place where Christian art tends to um try and is fearful even of even of that, even of there being I agree. A subjective emotional, some, some objective, subjective emotional content. Well, we don't want to be misunderstood. Because, we don't want to be misunderstood. Right, right. Yeah. You know, yeah, you, you want to, you feel like your job is to, is to explain everything so sufficiently that there can be no room for misinterpretation of exactly what you meant. It's like, that's exactly, like, your job is, the only job of an artist is to look at the world and tell people what you see mm. and, and, and leave, and, and if you're doing your job right, it, it should really leave, you know, you, you know, you construct the room, construct the house and then leave the space for people to, to, um, populate it with their own kind of emotional furniture. And, and that way, even as the, the definition and the meaning and the emotional content of that song and that piece of work changes for you, the writer, um, it doesn't have to corrupt and, dismantle it for everybody else, you know? So, and which is one of the ways that like I have found that I can, that I can still sing songs 20 years later. Um, because I realized like they don't mean to me what they meant when I wrote them. And they certainly, and that in no way bears on what those songs mean to anybody else. It's like, you know, in, in fact, if I'm honest and as I'm getting older, I'm realizing this, that like I'm only ever covering another man's material. Oh man. Like, I'm, do do you know what I mean? Like, like, cause I write it and all you can try to do is be in that moment, be as honest as you possibly can capture it as honestly as you can in every detail. And then, and then it's immediately outdated Intel, you know, and and by the time you record it, release it, and then you've toured and sang it a bunch of times, you, you're not the same man looking at the same world. So it's like, I think of my friends who are, who are right. So I think of my friends who are photographers and if they were asked to show pictures that they had taken in the past, they they could do that. They could show you that picture, but they'd probably say to you and my friends who are photographers, I've asked them this, like if I was there today, I don't know that I would stand in that spot. I don't know that I would have focused on that part of the, of the landscape. I don't know that I would have framed it that way. I'm not even sure I would have taken that picture. Oh my but, gosh. B- right. But at that moment it was, it, that's what I saw and that's what was important to me. And I snapped it. And the second I snapped it, like five seconds later, I wasn't the same man. And five seconds later, the landscape had shifted. And so it's like, all you can really ever do is cover another man's material, which is what I feel like I do and have done for 20 years. And, and what's good about that approach is it leaves the space for me to suddenly join with everyone else in terms of my subjective opinion on what the meaning of that song is. That you is, see what I mean? That's unbelievable. I do see what you mean. And honestly, I've never thought of it that way before outside of the fact of, you know, I, I like writing journals or whatever. Like I'm a journaler. It's one of the things I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've tried to write songs and they've been so crappy except like one or two, you know, <laughs> that may, maybe weren't, weren't bad at all. Well, but, I know how you feel. Um, yeah. and, no, you don't. But, <laughs> but that's sweet of you. Um, but like, yeah, if I read back through a journal that I even wrote like last year, I'm like, who wrote this? Right. Like, who is that? Bear- all you can do is capture it. All you can do is capture it faithfully in the moment. That's all you can really do. And then you have to leave it there. But, um, but again, that's the thing that's so powerful about art, regardless of who's made it, 
And I think that going back to the the thing we were talking about, <clears throat> I think that like one of the that this is what's this is what's so powerful about art. And I think that was the, that was kind of I got off on a rabbit trail there, but that was the point I was trying to make about um, art being the one thing left in culture in modern culture that is still mysterious and subjective and and um, um, it's kind of abstract in this primitive way. And yeah. um, and I know that for me artists were who really helped me find the language I needed to say these things that I intuited, um, early on. Yes. And, you know, I remember this great story, like, and, and I'll tell you, even though, even though like I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know how I see it. I have very complicated feelings about them today. And this would be the second time I've brought this band up in this one conversation, <laughs> but they've been such an influence on me. So I can't really avoid it, but is you too. So you too has always been such a great disruption to all this because, they're, you know, inarguably the biggest rock band of my generation mm-hmm. oh, absolutely. And, um, uh, and of several generations now. And, um, and yet um, a band full of um, mostly, it seems, men of some spiritual belief yeah. and, and faith and even something that they have chosen, which, and which they're not, um, it's not incumbent up on them to, speak about or frame things in an overly spiritual way, even if they see things that way, they don't have to as artists, but they choose to occasionally, uh, which is fascinating to me. Well, you don't have to, people in Christian music have to, yeah. but you too doesn't. And so I, it fascinates me when they choose to and how they choose to do it. But um, I, 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 I remember this, this quote um, that I, I always thought was so, was so fascinating and so good. Um, that somebody in, it was probably like the Octoon Babies Europa kind of days, which are easily my favorite, hands down my favorite era of U2 was their, was their super experimental phase, yeah. you know, the Octoon Babies Europa pop phase. That, that, yeah. that was, I mean, they, they tend to make records in threes. I don't know if you've noticed that about them. I don't know if they've noticed that about them, oh, but yeah. they tend to make records in threes. And that was, those were their three experimental records. Um, I always love any band's experimental period. I mean, you know, Magical Mystery Tour is my favorite Beatles record. Yes. You know? So it's like, yes. Um, and so, but I heard Bono, somebody had said, somebody um, asked Bono in an interview um, something about some song that they, and they're basically bringing into question his spiritual beliefs, his, his as he would frame them, his uniquely Judeo-Christian uh, beliefs about spirituality. They were bringing that into question um, in contrast to some lyrics in a particular song that they found to be very overtly sexual and sensual and it was just too much for them. And they were like, how, how can you justify, how can you, how can you say that you have this deep, deeply held Christian belief and yet the content of this song is so overtly sexual these references are so like in their opinion very like lewd and kind of sexual <laughs> and and bono as as always you know <laughs> it, he, it just came back with the most amazing answer and he said he said as a and i'm paraphrasing but but he i'm sure he said it better than this but he well, essentially what he said to that was as a christian man what would you have me do leave the last word about sexuality to the pornographers Wow. Whoa. And to which I like, I hear things like that. And I'm like, if, if Christian people are not allowed 
to make art about 100% of what they believe Jesus is Lord of, which is all things, incidentally, not just the most spiritual 2% of everything, the afterlife and transcendent moments of worship. That seems to be all that Christian art is about. <laughs> but all 100% of whatever Jesus is Lord of, Christian artists can and must make art about. The Bible gives Christians the language to do that. Um, we just fail to uh, to be brave enough to try. And what he was basically saying is, like, would you would you prefer that that Christians are silent on these in, in culture on these topics Man. and leave the last word to pornographers to talk about sexuality, or or right. do you want me writing songs about it too to pitch in against all that wow. and to throw that into the into the, the flowing river of culture? And I just thought that was such a great answer. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So anyway, it's such a great answer. I was going to ask you one question, but let's stay on this kind of vein for just a minute. You know, in talking about, you know, we've got this weird divide in culture, this sacred secular, you know, divide, especially in things like writing and music and media and things of that nature. Um, one of the things that strikes me so much about what you're saying is it's almost like this idea of the transcendent, this idea of what is true, this idea of being raw and honest seems to wipe out those divides. And I'm wondering, right. like I heard this interview, um, uh, Bill, Billy Corrigan, uh, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, was on like CNN a couple years ago. It was a quick little interview. I don't know if you caught it, but he was talking about how he wasn't so much ashamed of Christian artists. He was actually like, no, like, you know, you know who's actually missing the boat here is everybody in the mainstream that's refusing to talk about God in their music when we're all talking about it all the time other, oh, other, wow, otherwise. Yeah. And he's like, you know, so God is the third rail of rock and roll. And until people actually, yes, I did hear this. actually yeah. get the courage to actually, it doesn't have, you don't have to preach, but share, you know? Right. Like what's Well, the, which comes back to your original point of certainty. Like certainty is not required to have a voice in the conversation and, and to have legitimate, a legitimate viewpoint and opinions and an emotional reaction to the idea of God. Like it, certainty is not required and it better not be better because not be. any, because anyone who claims to be certain about it is immediately disqualified from speaking about oh it. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yep. Right. I mean like that terror, that terrifies me. Like, so, like that, this is the thing that scares me the most about Christians is when they are certain, they are certain, certain of it. How can you possibly be certain of something that you've never seen, a place you've never been, a person you've never physically met? I'm not saying, I, I understand the role of faith. I get how all that works. But what I'm saying is, you, there's a reason why it's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a mystical religion. It's because it's something you just kind of can't be certain of. And if you could be certain of it, then faith would have zero role in it. Right. And so, like, to claim to have, to be justified by faith and also be certain is incongruent. And you like, cannot do both. And, like, how can you Because one literally supplants the other. Absolutely. And, and that's what drives me crazy. And I think that's probably what Corgan was talking about. Yes. He was like, people feel like they have to be certain to speak. And if the only people who are speaking are the ones who believe they're certain, then we have 100% of the wrong people speaking to us about spirituality. <laughs> yes, yes. And and Derek, even right? even if we have been to a place and we have met a person and we have like had empirical experience, who's even certain of that? Right. Like, come on, right. come on, man. 
<laughs> right. So that's like, and man, that's, yes, that's such a good point. So it's like, you know, because everybody who I, like most of my friends, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go all the way on the limb and say that most of my friends are not, would not claim any kind of Christian spirituality for sure. I don't know. I don't know if they would claim any kind of spirituality. I think they probably have to admit that there's some kind of spiritual element to things in general, even if, even if it's just serendipity, but like we talk a ton about, we talk a lot about spirituality. Absolutely. Um, but, but they don't frame it in those kind of particulars and with that kind of language. And they certainly, that's like the, that's like the thing I love the most about the friends that I have is, is how we have these amazing conversations about spirituality and everyone ends, everyone ends their statements with question marks. It's like, like, we're all kind of saying right at the end of every <laughs> statement because like, I think, you know, and yeah, I mean, you know, like I've got a really super good buddy of mine uh, named Ryan Alexander, who's, who's the, the, the songwriter, primary songwriter and guitar player, lead singer for this band civilian. And who I think is a genius. He's a genius. And he's literally the songwriter I wish to be when I grow up. <laughs> and um, although I, he, he's maybe half my age. And so, um, he and I talk about this all the time. Um, we talk about this stuff all the time. And the thing that, and like, so Ryan and I really wanted to, we, we will not, maybe, maybe we won't, we probably won't do this, but we've talked about how much we would love to start a podcast and call it. We're probably wrong. <laughs> it's going to be the name of it. You know, it's like, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah like we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but we're probably wrong and we know it, <laughs> Yeah, but we're not good. We're still going to talk about it. You know? And it's like, and every conversation we have feels like that. It's like, I'm probably wrong, but this is how, this is how I, this is how it feels to me. And this feels kind of true, but you know, I can't, especially Christians. It's like, if, if you, depending on what, what brand of, um, you know, what system of theology you kind of ascribe to, if you really believe that you're hundred, you know, that you're, you're completely depraved, wouldn't your, emotions and reason and capacity to discern things to the point of certainty also be depraved. On, and man. if that's yeah. true, how could you possibly trust your certainty? Seriously. And if anything, would that not also be something Jesus would have to redeem and save about you? That's also completely destroyed down to the studs. I mean, so your certainty is that should be no comfort. Um, you know, Absolutely. so it's like, it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Super complicated. So I, I think you, you, started to touch on this a little bit, but one of the quotes that I, that I have from an interview that you did a while back um, that I love, um, I think that just kind of taps into you know, the fact that you are so honest about the fact that you're like, I don't have this all figured out, is the fact that, right. that you've mentioned that sometimes you have a hard time believing the words of your own songs. Maybe you could uh, talk hmm. about that a little bit. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Yeah, I mean, but, well, and it's like the thing that going back to what we were talking about before, with the fact that I feel like really mostly what my job is, is to be, is to, you know, get good at and, um, covering another man's material, you know, like that's my job. My job is to cover another man's material. And which goes back to who was a Groucho Marx who said my life's been married to six men and they're all me, you know? And (laughs) so it's like, I'm constantly, you know, having to figure out, and it's a tight wire sometimes to figure out how to emotionally, 
have for myself. Like the audience probably has no problem attaching, uh, populating a song with emotional furniture for themselves and what it means to them. But in order for me to perform it and to be honest about it and to not be off making my grocery list while I'm singing that particular song, like I have to find some emotional hook into it too. And it might've been a decade since I've had any emotional connection to a particular song, or maybe I've completely changed my mind and no longer agree with the content of that song. And so I have to figure out how to do that. And, and so this is kind of where I've come to, this is where, this is kind of my current place with it um, in the process of how I do it is like, I've kind of come to understand my discography, my records that I have made and the songs that I have written from which I can choose and curate an hour, hour and a half's worth of music to play for a group of people at a concert. Um, I, I kind of see it as my personal liturgy that I'm writing. Um, and what I mean by that is any given night, I would much prefer to have anyone else's songs to sing and choose from to craft an evening. I would love to have Paul Simon's songs. I would love to have Paul McCartney's songs. I would love to have Bob Bob Dylan's songs. I would love to have almost anybody's songs, um, but mine in order to put them and weave them together to say something about where I am, you know, on that particular night. Um, But I don't. I, I don't, I, I, I have my songs. I'm stuck with them. I, I, I don't have, these are the songs I have and I have to sing them. And so, and the fact that you guys might have listened to some of my songs, even in the last week or month, you do it by choice. The point is, I promise you that I have heard my songs more times than you have. And that being the case, it, it seems inarguable to me that, my songs are clearly more for me than they are for anybody because I'm the one who has to hear them the most. Right. So what that says to me is that these songs that I'm stuck with, many of which I feel as though I'm having to cover because I don't relate to the man who wrote them, maybe don't agree with the man who wrote them. What it becomes for me is like, it's like my, it's like my liturgy. It's like the, because when you go to, if, you know, if, if you go to church and if you go to a very conservative or traditional church and a, a liturgical church where they have the liturgy, liturgy as part of the structure, then what it is, is you go and you say certain things every single week. And there's like a thing you go through and it's like, you say these things and you recite these creeds and then you sing these hymns and then you um, repeat the, these bits of the Bible. And then you, and like, you don't walk into church every week, believing all the lines and content of the, of the apostles or Nicene Creed. You don't, but that's why you show up and you say it again. Yeah. Like we, 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 the, the great power and use of ancient hymns and, and old, uh, and creeds and things that have been poured over by, a, you know, for a thousand years is in the way that they provide for us language with which to confess things that we wish to believe. Man, wow. They're not full of things that we believe. They're full of things we wish to believe. And that's why we show up every week to say them again um, and to proclaim them again and to recite them again. That's why we do it. And that's why I like the liturgy. And so for me in that same way, when I show up and have to sing songs, um, uh, I... I, my songs are not full of things that I believe. 
not by a long shot, and maybe not for more than a decade, some of those songs, but they are full of things I wish to believe. Wow. And so I will show up again and again to say them and to sing them, and, and maybe occasionally I do find myself believing them. Um, but that's not required to show up, which comes back to our thing about certainty is not required to speak. Right. Um, you know, it's like, cause I'm not certain. I mean, I'm not even close to certain and, um, and maybe less, a little less certain every day. And so I'm grateful to have my liturgy that I'm stuck with, that mm-hmm. I have to show up and continue to sing over and over and say over and over in hopes of maybe believing um, but that, that, and so typically like I'll, I'll even, sometimes I'll even say that to people. I'm like, here's what's happening here. Just so you know, like this is, this is easily, and I'm, I'm an artist. I made my living as an artist for like more than 20 years. So I'm, I'm definitely a narcissist, but <laughs> that said, um, I'm afraid that probably while I, why I'm here is to recite my liturgy, which is what I'm going to do for the next 90 minutes. Now, if you guys relate to or resonate with some of these songs, all I can really say is I'm sorry, because that means we probably have a lot in common. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. But, um, but primarily, I think this is for me, you know? Yeah. And um, so, you know, that's kind of, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I've come to look at it. Man. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, you just kind of touched on in a different way, kind of what this what this space that you you've chosen to be a part of tonight, this deconstructionists podcast. Which, by the way, we wanted to name ourselves the deconstructionists reconstructionists podcast, <laughs> right? But because it's not about tearing everything down, it's about it's about always sure. always transcending and moving and going back and going forward and like right. uh, we're. Yeah. What we're against is this kind of false certainty that keeps people locked in these little claustrophobic cages, and we just want people to feel like they can express, and that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Would you mind sharing, if, if you feel comfortable, a little autobiographical, whatever, like, how do you relate to that idea of kind of deconstruction, reconstruction? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing you didn't name it all that, because, <laughs> mostly because there's no way you could say all that after two drinks. <laughs> and... That's how and and, and if you <laughs> and if you can't say it after two drinks, then you you really like go ahead and invest in your future and don't call it that. Right. But um, yeah, we decided but, it'd be okay um, to just be misunderstood. Sometimes it's actually better for marketing to be misunderstood. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yep. Yeah, I found that to be true. But I mean, I I'm definitely at a at a point where I. I think that there are seasons of your life where deconstruction of spiritual belief, of family stories that are on loop in your head, um, of just so many things can be like a luxury and it can be like a thing that you can kind of, you can kind of take a vacation into and you can do and then you can kind of pull out of. And then there are other seasons of life where it's where you're literally, it's like that scene in the original 1970s Willy Wonka where the room just keeps getting more narrow against the tiniest door ever. And you have no choice but to find a way through it. And, and so like, I feel like I've been in a pretty long season of kind of, um, um, unavoidable kind of deconstruction and, 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 like and I, and I think it's it's really 
proven to be a really good thing. I, I think, I think that the, the, um, here's where I've kind of come, how I've come to terms with it is, and, and I think I might even, we, earlier we were talking about, um, um, our, our buddies, uh, in, uh, over at the sons and doubters podcast and, yeah. and, uh, who are friends in common of ours, but, yes. Um, but I, and I think I maybe talked about this when I was talking to those guys, but it was maybe the first time I'd really said it out loud and heard myself articulate it that way, but it's, it's proven to kind of continue to be true even a year or so later is that I think that what, especially Christians have, but probably everybody, I mean, I probably everybody, I, I just, I've only had the experience that I've had, so I don't know how things are for other people who believe other things, but, um, I think that we have. Um, hypothetical stated beliefs and then we have actual or what I might call practical beliefs like what we believe in practice if you just look at our behavior totally agree man and I think we and, and I think that ideally those things are integrated and those things are the same thing and our stated and practical beliefs our hypothetical and practical beliefs are the same. Like, like our behavior and the things we state about what we believe about the world are the same thing. That's, that's the kind of the ideal. I think that's super rare, but I think that's kind of the idea and the ideal. I think that when Christian people talk about seasons of doubt and seasons of, you know, that whole thing, I think that what they are talking about is they are giving language to a reality that's probably been there and been true for a while. And they're just starting to feel the disintegration, the disharmony. It's like when you look at sound waves um, and they kind of move, they kind of gyrate back and forth, they move the same way. And then after a while, when things are in, when things are kind of cacophonous and out of harmony, the sound waves get really crazy and, and off from each other. And there's a point at which it gets so much so that, that it gets out of control. And, and I think that when people talk about seasons of doubt, what they're talking about is their body is like, it's like coming out of them that how out of sync their stated belief is with their practical belief. Man, I totally agree. That I'm, I'm saying things about what I hypothetically believe, what I wish to believe, but what I actually believe is super different. And the only thing I can call that is like doubt and I don't know what else I can call that. And there was, I think there gets to be, and I think that what leads to real de- and, and healthy and also unavoidable deconstruction, depending on your season of life, is when you get to the point where you just, you realize that you can no longer go on um, waving the banner of stated right. hypothetical beliefs. Right. That you just, it, you just, you get to the point where you don't have the energy or the bandwidth anymore. Right. Um, to declare any of that anymore. And you realize all that's true about you. And therefore all you can really talk about or say or admit or own is your practical, actual belief. That's right. Yeah. And, and so there've been several times in the last couple of years where I've had to say where my friends will say, so kind of, where are you? You know, like where, where are things? And I was like, well, right now, if you're asking me right this minute, which is the moment we're in and the only moment I can answer your question, um, which doesn't really have any bearing on, a moment, five minutes or five years from now. Um, I feel like maybe I'm a suspicious theist. Like I, I think, I think I do, or, or maybe a suspicious deist. Like 
I, I believe that there is a spiritual, um, I, I do believe that there's like something out there, but I don't believe I can trust it. And that's my actual belief. That's, that's the way that I'm behaving right now. Mm, now, is that yeah. my stated hypothetical belief? No, 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 no. I can tell you all about that. I've been crafting that for years. Like, mm. I mean, I've, I've got that in a, I've got those ducks in a row. Like I can tell you all about all the categories and schools of thought and, and denominational, you know, navigating. And I can tell you all about my well-crafted stated hypothetical belief from where I am right this minute is I'm pretty uncertain. Mm, and, man. and it's like, I think there are seasons of life where, life where you're forced through that little door yeah. and you don't have any option, yeah. but to kind of scrap the hypothetical stated belief and just say, you know what? The actual practical belief is really the only real belief. And I might as well, it does not benefit. It no longer benefits me socially or otherwise to, uh, to project one and have another. Mm. And I'm just going to project the same. I'm going to project and have the same belief now. And that's terrifying. It's a terrifying thing to do. Are you familiar with um, Pete, Pete Rollins at all? Yeah, sure. So Rollins says, you know, in this one conference that everybody gets kind of mad at him and he's like, they're like, so wait, do you deny the resurrection? And he goes, right. and he goes, absolutely. I deny the resurrection. I deny the resurrection <laughs> every time I let the poor stay poor. I let the marginalized stay marginalized. I let the widows, you know, stay unattended. I let people hang in prison. I let the hungry stay hungry. Wow. He's like, I deny the resurrection every time. He's like, but you know, maybe on a good day, like on a really good day, when I love somebody or include somebody or, you know, reach a hand across the aisle, then I affirm the resurrection. Yeah. Right. It's like, that's your actual practical belief. Like, look at my behavior. Right. And if that's my actual belief, then that's what it is. And I can't, there's nothing I can do. I can't avoid that. I got to be honest, you know, and, and I think that, I think you have seasons of life where you have the luxury of a stated belief versus a practical belief. And then there are other seasons of life where you, where you no longer have that luxury. And I think I've been in that particular season for a couple of years now. And yeah. it's actually wound up being a really liberating and good thing for me. And it's like, and because for me, it's like, I would rather be honest about that and right. be able to be there, stand in the stream in real time and proceed than to stunt potentially years of great examination and growth and forward motion standing behind a stated belief that is not true and has not been true for years. Like, I think that's what's dangerous. I agree. You know, when, when, when belief is so well crafted that it just goes unchecked and unexamined and, you know, I mean, even we even have to renew our driver's license every few years. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's like, like it's a good practice to go and pull it all up from scratch and really look at the whole thing again. And let's really, let's really go through the whole thing and let's really make sure that's where we still are. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't, I, you know, and we sure don't. even if it, yeah. even, yeah, yeah. Even if the, even if the journey it can be a little terrifying, it's like, it's, it's more terrifying to be in that place and not know or deny it to be in that place and admit it and be in it and aware of it and awake to it and, proceed and grow into it is a much better thing than to actually also be there, but to deny it 
and to not deny yourself the opportunity yeah. to examine and grow and be in the the the, the real time moving stream of it. Yeah, you know, that's good. Yeah. Before before we wrap up our time with you, um, we just have uh, one more question for you in regards sure. to. Uh, the one thing that we try to emphasize on our podcast um, in regards to kind of going through what we would call the deconstruction type journey um, yeah. is just the absolute necessity and importance of community and, and doing it with, yeah. you know, whether that's a group of people or one person, just having someone that you can absolutely be authentic and real with um, who, know, yeah. who knows you and, and, and can maybe speak hard truths to you. And one, one of the interviews that I remember reading, uh, that you did, you talked about, you know, just a tough time that you're going through in your personal life and the need for safe people in your life who can truly, who you can truly be honest with, as opposed to just being surrounded by yes men or yes women. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's like, that's a thing that I didn't, I didn't see or realize the value of until I'm going to say too late in life. And, and I, and I, and I, I wish I had, I wish I had had it. It's like, you know, like I don't feel it's just too easy to, um, you know, social media is a great metaphor, um, for, or euphemism really for, um, the way that we can craft what we wish, for people to know about ourselves and to even fool ourselves into believing that we're known as much as we're fooling our friends into believing they know us. And it's like, and and I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise people to have a lot of, a lot of folks um, or to do it the way that I've seen some do it, like in a kind of a more public cavalier way. I I think that you really want to have, you know, it's really important to have, um, a person or two. And, and I would advise if you're, and this isn't, this isn't, um, anything, um, prejudice or sexist or anything, but like, if you're a man, I would advise to find a few male friends, a, a few safe guys. And if you're a woman, find a few safe women yeah. Yeah. that you can. And, 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 and the thing is like, and if you're married, fantastic, but like even, even your spouse doesn't need to be and really must mustn't be alone in bearing being the sole witness to your failure and your questions and your that's huge yeah like yeah you really want to have um a, a, you know a, a, just a few safe people with whom you can uh, t- to whom you can tell everything and um and uh and what's interesting that i found is some of the most valuable characters for me um, in that, in those roles have not been Christians. And I know that might seem provocative or something, but it's like, I, I, you know, I, because what I know is that these people know me and that they love me. And that at the end of the day, what's interesting is even in seasons where I have, maybe come temporarily un, uh, tethered to, let's say, objective moralism. What I, what's interesting that I have found is that 
what's even more compelling to me than random objective moralism is choices that are in line and line of sight to the man who I wish to be and the health in my life that I wish to have. And it's funny how things that I, um, you you know, uh, things you struggle with and things that you battle and, and wrestle with. It's like the best reason that I've had to struggle and battle and actually the places where I have found um, that I've managed to really make non-issues out of all those things is in sorting through them with friends who can speak to me about what kind of man I want that I would want to be. And, 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 and what, what do you feel like? Do you feel like that behavior is healthy for you? Or do you feel like that's not healthy for you? And so I'm like, well, wait a second. So, we're, but we're not talking about what's just like objectively right and wrong. You're, you're talking about my, like my personal health. Like I've never even, we've never, I've never framed it that way, yeah. but ironically, and the two things can be in line with each other. Of course they can. Sure. And they usually are. But, but as I've, it's just, it, it's one of those, one of those gifts that you find when you um, are open to the, to the extent that you find that, you, that you're willing to, to look for those people wherever they can be found. And I'll tell you that, that one of the best things about, um, you know, one of the great things, things I'm grateful for about, about the last couple of years that have been hard years is that um, when you meet people, when you typically meet people and you typically make friends with people and you don't know why you just resonate with and connect with certain people, you don't know why. And, um, but they're typically people you have, in, you have something in common with and people who you share a sense of humor or a common, you know, set of cultural references and whatever it is, but you, but you typically know good things about each other and you yeah. share those things. And then at some point you learn hard things about each other and, 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 and maybe bad things. And, and that challenges those friendships. Like, Almost, I'm going to say, and I'm going to say every friendship I have uh, in my life at this point, on the other side of really hard things, the great thing about these friendships versus the friendships I might have had before, which is not to in any way disparage those friends as so much as the, the, the nature of the, the basis upon which we, we, we connected initially and the way that we did it, which is the way everyone does it, is that the friends I have now the first thing that we learned about each other were the worst things. And that was, that was kind of the point of connection, you know, because we were going through hard things and we, and so we wanted to find people with whom we could go through hard things together. Mm, And because you're kind of flailing and you're kind of grabbing on to things and you want to kind of keep your head above the water. And, and so like the, the first things we learned about each other were the worst things. And over months and even years now, as you learn other things and good things, it's kind of like surprising and delightful. Like, well, I have no idea you were so good at that. I didn't know you were a great, you know, copywriter. It's like, you don't know these, you know, the first things you learn. And those are the friendships that these are the people, you know, are not going anywhere because the first thing they learn about you are the worst things. So there's no surprises in the future about that sort of thing. That's the moment that you double down on somebody when you know the worst thing. And, you know, and so it's like, that's that's the great benefit 
of the friends you make in hard times. Oh man. Is um and, and so it's hard. You have to do it intentionally. Yeah. Yep. And you should. But when you're not in hard times, which is when I would suggest doing it because right. it's a great antidote to hard times. It's a great way to avoid them, you know. <laughs> but like you have to do it intentionally. And so what's required is here's a person, for instance, just hypothetically, who doesn't know all the worst things about me. And there's no I'm not in any kind of circumstance where they would know. And there's nothing really all that horrible going on that they would know about. So I have to be intentional about basically pretending as though I've just been found out and I have to tell them everything. And I need to pretend as though it's unavoidable. Otherwise I won't do it. And once they know all the worst things now I have, and they stay now I have someone who will never leave me. Man, that's good. And yeah. that's a totally different type of friendship. And I feel like 100% of the friends that I have now um, came from the crucible of those circumstances. And and that's why I know I can depend on these people. And I know that they love me. And I know that, you know what I'm saying? So it's, um, and I think it's so important. So as you're saying, if you're going through those seasons of, deconstruction, if you're forced into them, if you're choosing to do it, if you're touristing through deconstruction, whatever it is, um, you really, there is no version of, of that journey that is without companions and the people who you have with you must, you, there, there must be a, um, it has to be a, uh, a game of strip poker. Like everybody has to Absolutely, get new, yep, yep. you know, like, like it's all, it's like, it's like, it's, it's all gotta come off. Um, like we all have to have everything on each other. We all have to have all the dirt because deep down, I think we feel like that's the only way we can trust each other. But that's so good, like man. when you learn the worst things about each other first, those are the, those are the landmines that you unintentionally plant beneath your feet. When you get to know people the conventional way and you know, all these great things about you, all these things we have in common and look where you've all the same friends, our kids go to the same school and it's all so great. And then, and then a bond and the bomb drops. It's like, the more you can keep from planting landmines under your feet by being completely upfront and honest with people wow. and being intentional about doing that in times of peace, um, that's the best investment you can make Dude. into avoiding or shortening really hard times. That is oh. some really great so advice true. to end with here, man. We're going to wrap up. We want, to, um, we want to be sensitive of your yeah, time. Yeah, I've kept you guys so long. <laughs> no, 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 we look, appreciate it. Look, uh, qu- I'm such a loud mouth. Question, no, you're, no you're, you're really spitting some good truth, man, and we really appreciate it. So question number one, sure. um, would you be willing to come back uh, in a later season and, uh, and talk to us again? Of you know, when you're not the same, When you're not the same guy that you are right now. Yeah, yeah, we get the <laughs> no, new version. No, yeah, you'll be talking to a different guy. Yeah, yeah, right. that'll, that'll be super cool. And then uh, number two, so one of my favorite songs of yours that I use – for the deconstruction kind of process that I'm going through is your song on I See Things Upside Down, Medication. Whoa. Wow. (laughs) Don't lie to me Just tell me something true Cause I'm only free When I look at you Don't want medication 
I mean, if you think about it, that's um, it's it's really the words of that song are pretty pretty anthemic sure, to saying absolutely. like, yeah. okay, let's strip this down and see what's real, even though it's going to hurt like hell. Right. Right. So yes. that's yes. So that's right. I, I'm I'm telling you that's my favorite song that you've written. Now let me. Wow, now, now, man. Now, well, that's, now let me embarrass you and and ask you what's your favorite song you've written. Um, I mean, it's like I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be playing into the um the artist uh you know kind of. <laughs> <laughs> personality if I if I admitted to liking any of my songs. Um, that's true. That's why you know, I said like, it was that, gonna that, be embarrassing. Like man. That, that's kinda well but that's kind of the thing is like you you write them and you think they're good for a minute and then you basically continue making records in order to as your apologies for all the previous songs you've ever written. You know? <laughs> right. And um that's the only thing that compels you to keep doing it is because you feel like you're failing so miserably and spectacularly at it all the way through. But like, like what I'll say is like, I think that, and I don't know how satisfying this answer will be, but like, I, I think that there was a record that I did a couple of some, a few years ago now that was called control. And it was easily my least, um, successful record ever. And it was like, I mean, cause this, you know, it was a rag, it was basically a, um, an elect, it was like an electronic, like an electro pop rock opera of the singularity. I mean, it was like, uh, there is no audience. There is no audience for this record. Like there, you know, like, um, it was so heavy conceptual. It was like all house and no door on this thing. Dude, it was sweet. And, <laughs> and, but, but the thing is like, I put two years into conceptualizing it, writing it. I, I wrote a, a, a fictional short story that the record was based on. And the whole record was written from the perspective of this character. And it was this, it was basically kind of a mashup of the stories behind movies like her or ex machina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but like two or three, years before those movies right, and so right. um it's so when i saw those movies come out i was like man <laughs> like 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 i i made that record like i i wrote that as a record like three years ago and it hit the market like a rock you know like yeah man and now spike you know jones is doing it but anyway so um i don't think i'll ever do better than that record i don't think i'll ever write a better front to back. I don't think I'll ever do better. And I've, I've put a record out since and I, you know, and I'm, and I'm, my goal is to put one out this year. Um, but I, I don't think I'll ever, I, I just think that was for me. And I think there's no irony, um, lost on the fact that it was easily my least successful record. And I think it, and, I, and in, in my, you know, very subjective view of what I've made, I don't, I, I think, I don't think I'll do better. I don't think I'll do better than that record.
But that record is incredible. That's the one Adam introduced me to your music. Uh, and whoa, that's crazy. And I, we were we were in the car, and he popped that thing on, and I was like, "Whoa, what is this?" So it was it's a super strange record, oh, and, I, and, I, and it's and it was so. I think that that was a record where I really did feel. Um, at my maximum artistic liberty. Like I really felt like I could do whatever I wanted. And I, I literally accepted no pre filters or expectations internally, externally. I just was like, what do I want to do? And that's what I wanted to do. And I did exactly that. And, and it was just such a spectacular failure uh, commercially, but like literally to the point where like I was two weeks into the tour touring the record um, performing it almost like dinner theater, like where I played like an acoustic set to open because I wanted to satisfy the people who just had to hear Wedding Dress. And then I basically played the entire control record straight through with a band and in between songs would read excerpts from the short story I'd written in order to keep people into the story and understanding what was happening. That's awesome. And it was so strange. It made no like It was so odd, the experience for everybody. And like maybe two or three weeks into the tour when like there just weren't people just weren't coming because people were not interested in the record. They didn't buy it. They were not coming to the shows. It was just like, wow. So I'm not going to get a year's worth of touring out of this. I literally have to abandon it and keep and and go on if I'm going to survive and I'm tenacious. So I immediately started writing a new record, came home, made a new record and just left it. Wow, <laughs> that's all I could do. I'm so glad you wrote it. You know, even if it's uh, even if it's something you it didn't get listened to as much. You know, I always think like C.S. Lewis yeah. has always been my favorite author, and two of his favorite things he the two best things he said he ever wrote are like his, one of his, one of his least read books ever. It's this myth that he retold called "Till We Have Faces." Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, nobody reads that book. No, you're right. Yeah, and then Paralandra in his space trilogy, and yeah, pe- right. people are like, "Wait, yeah, wait, sci-fi stuff. he wrote he yeah. wrote sci-fi," and it's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah and right. it's incredible." Like, it's so good. So, yeah. so dude, don't worry. It'll yeah. it'll it'll find its well. It'll the find thing its is, time. you know, and that's well, and that's not why you make it. Nope. You know, and nope, and I've had the great luxury of always feeling like I was doing what I was compelled to do, and managed to find some commercial success at it. So I know that's been a luxury for me, and this was the one. I'm such a baby. Like this was the one moment where me doing whatever I wanted to do didn't happen to be what everybody wanted at the time. So it's like, you know, it, yeah, that's not why you do it. Nope. And it's not why I've ever done it. it doesn't matter. And I've, I've had a luxurious career that what I've made happened to be something people cared about. But yeah. that record definitely is special to me. Well, keep so, us posted anyway. on your new material. We will do our best to get the word yeah. out on that. Even, even have you Man, on the show to do a little blurb or, you know, whatever. But um, sure. it has just been an absolute joy and a pleasure and just a, a really deep, rich experience to talk to you. Uh, we hope that we introduce yeah, you too. as many people as possible to your great catalog and just your, your journey and how you open yourself up. And just thank you so much, Derek. Yeah. Yeah. Really it's a pleasure. It. Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk again. Absolutely. Let's definitely yeah. talk again. And, and I uh, guarantee you uh, a few, a few more people will be, uh, be spinning uh, control after we drop this episode. So absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, if a few more people buy it, then it will double its sales. <laughs> that would be amazing. I think we could put, be amazing, I'd put, so. money, I'd put money on that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, blessings to you and everything that you're doing, man, and everything that you are and you're, be- you're becoming. And uh, we hope uh, we can all be friends and keep talking. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Same. Yeah, same. Awesome, Derek. Have a great night, man. <laughs> hey. Yeah, you too. In the days before the night, before the day. In the songs before the words that you could say. a little a little different than normal john Um, you're gonna have to handle this outro (laughs) um i I think i really enjoyed that interview for a couple reasons number one because it's it's funny you interview an artist or somebody whose main day job isn't writing these heavy theological books and so you think oh all right you know we're gonna get a slightly kind of easier you know not easier is a horrible way to put it but you know my my brain isn't going to hurt nearly as much after this one. You know, we're just going to have a fun interview where we talk about awesome music. And then Derek Webb just drops just nuggets on you. Dude, your mouth oh, was man. hanging open so many times. You weren't expecting that. No, I mean, his ability to articulate these these crazy concepts, the way he looks at his own music, especially the further, mm. the more distance he gets mm-hmm. from the creation of the mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. Like when he talked about touring and how it, he feels like it's almost like playing another man's cover songs because he's so separated from the man he was when he wrote that music just blew my mind. That's the kind of honesty. Yeah. That is shocking because two things happen when you hear somebody say something like that. You go, I know that's true. Yeah. Of myself. Yeah. And why the hell have I never realized that? It was such a poignant moment because I think if you're not looking back and saying, I, I, I'm not that person anymore, then you have not evolved or changed as a person or, or grown up in any form or sense. So I think, dude, that was such a huge, heavy hitting moment for me. I'm like, oh, yeah. And the fact that um, the term liturgy that he used and the way that oh. he used it, that his songs are his own liturgy. Yeah. That like, dude, they are, they, they were his songs. And he's like, you know, I own these and these are mine. But at the same time, like, I'm not that guy. And I'm I'm almost trying to become that guy, or I want to be that guy. And right. it's like, I I didn't get Bob Dylan's songs. I got my songs. Right. And they're part of my story, even if I have tension and frustration and disbelief and doubt and and distance from these things. That's the kind of honesty that we want to foster through this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Just oh gosh. Like uh, it, it's going to take me a while to, to to process some of the things that he said. I just and and I have a bet going with him now. Uh, so I'm going to need at least two of you to go out and buy the album Control. Yeah. Um, just so I can be right. And then tweet it out. Yeah. Or or share it on tweet ins- it Instagram him, yeah. or Facebook. Yeah. Because it's such that, a beautiful album. Oh my gosh. Why why do not, more people not have this? I don't I don't understand. First of all, it's a concept album about like artificial intelligence and and souls and spirit. What an incredible album. And the composition 
I was astounded by it. I was like, yeah. I don't even know what to do with this. <laughs> so yeah, control. But all of his all of his albums and yeah. all of his collaborations. And by the way, if you haven't, John, do you like free music? Oh, I love free music. Do you love free music? I love free music. Did you know that Noisetrade.com has thousands and thousands and thousands of phenomenal artists that you can download for free? Oh yeah, and if you are. Uh, if you fashion yourself, fancy yourself even uh, kind of hipster, then there's nothing more underground than some of the artists that they have featured on this website. Did and you know I discovered, <laughs> I discovered, I'm the one that discovered the Civil Wars. I, I, I did, I had heard that <laughs> Did rumor. you know that? <laughs> have you heard this? It's circulating on the on the internet. I'm going to need you to get on them the, back together then. On the World Wide Web. <laughs> It's circulating on, on the interwebs. You said that on our last episode. And when I was editing it, I laughed out loud. It was really great on the interwebs. Yeah, noisetrade.com is a pro- project that Derek started up. And so he's this unbelievably forward-thinking entrepreneur as well. So what a delight to have that guy on the show, man. I mean, what a total, total dream come true for me. And he totally gets what we're doing here. He understands the whole deconstruction, reconstruction thing. He's going through it himself. And just a good friend you guys could do a lot worse than to download everything that Derek Webb has ever done oh my gosh encourage you to do so and uh, we will have the songs that we played on this episode every song you heard on this episode you can find in the show notes and um, direction to get to Derek's uh, other material and what are some other things we got to wrap up um, Um, I mean basically just enjoy the songs and if if you if you really like the music as Adam said we'll have direction for that in, uh, in our show notes and also, um, you know, the best way that you guys can support us right now as we continue to grow, since we are, as it is hard to believe, um, still a young podcast in our second month of existence. So continue to send us the feedback. But uh, the way that you can support us uh, the most would be to uh, follow us on our social media. So we are uh, uh, Deconstructionist Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram, uh, Deconstruct Cast on Twitter. Um, and then, of course, our website is ddeconstructionists.com. Uh, but the biggest way uh, beyond that that you can support us is just to go to iTunes, go to uh, Stitcher, leave us a nice five-star review, subscribe to our podcast. And then the biggest way is just continue to tell your friends about us. Uh, we have been growing exponentially, uh, purely organically, uh, just through the love of, of people like you listening. Um, and we thank you so, so much, especially for those who have gone in and, and donated to, to help us fund this because we do pay for this completely out of our pockets. This is not our full-time job. We have full-time jobs and families outside of this. So Adam, tell them actually how they can donate and, and help us out with that. I'm going to actually start. Um, this is a shame. I'm a marketing <laughs> major and I didn't think of this beforehand. But uh, we have put in the show notes now the link to the donate button on our website. And here's how this works, guys. Uh, we, uh, we don't have like a Patreon site yet. There's not recurring donations. We don't want to have to even ask for that. I mean, it'd be great. Like, look, if you want a recurring donation, I will make one just for you. <laughs> you can email me and I'll make you one and that'd be fantastic. Or you can just cut us an enormous check and just fund this project. Right. Uh, or if you know anybody that would like to do that. But listen, right. in all seriousness, if you are finding this to be the kind of place that John and I designed it to be, a safe place where you get to hear different perspectives from different people and grow as a person in your journey of deconstructing and reconstructing. And that's something that you've connected with. Please help us out. Please help us just pay for some of this equipment, the hosting, the websites, getting these guests uh, on and sounding good. The 
unbelievable amounts of coffee, LaCroix, and beer that we have to drink <laughs> yeah. to keep our sanity. The books, the research, the time, mm. uh, the equipment. John just had to buy a new computer because his crashed and we can't have that happening. <laughs> right. Microphones, all kinds of other technical aspects of the show. Any support that you can give us financially would be hugely appreciated. And I will even have my wife write you a handwritten thank you note because honestly she's probably the one that wants us to get the support more than anyone else it's like hey can my son start taking karate or are we going to (laughs) keep doing this podcast (laughs) that's the truth but uh, we do have some really exciting stuff coming up in the future Uh, but until uh, we can make this more of a full-time thing uh, we will start getting into um, every other week you know, episodes. Um, that was kind of the plan from the beginning before we just kind of got destroyed by um, all these awesome folks saying yes to us. So uh, we'll continue to do weekly for the next few weeks, and then uh, we're going to kind of uh, get into an every other week. We're going to let you guys breathe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Just, so. <laughs> just take a deep breath. Oh, man. But we do. Um, we are really excited to say that we have the rest of 2016 mapped out. Uh, we have Way other- more than mapped out. Oh, yeah. we're, we're bleeding in 2017. Yeah. John, so, when are we going to get to sleep again? Never. <laughs> <laughs> never. I will never sleep again if it means people are going to appreciate these yeah. kinds of conversations. Well, we love you guys so much. And, we, you know, we really mean that to anybody that's connected with the show, uh, whether you've given us, you know, positive or negative feedback, it really doesn't matter. Because if you've been here, then you've been impacted. And yes. we love you. Yes. No matter who you are, uh, we are working to grow as people, as producers, as podcasters, as interviewers. And it's a whirlwind. And we're just letting it all hang out there and letting you guys see just in, in very raw form who we are. Yeah. And so if you've been here, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate you. And we will keep doing this as long as we possibly can. Yeah. And we hope you hear that the fun that we're having because um, this is the most fun thing it's so that you can fun. possibly imagine. So it really is. Yeah. Thanks for the and thanks, everybody, for the positive feedback. We love you guys. Keep deconstructing for now. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Norlock. And I'm John Williamson. Yeah.